Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of Boss Builder Podcast is brought to you by Boss Builders University. Now, if you're the boss, you probably realize there's a lot of stuff you don't know and you need to know it fast. Well, the good news for you is that we have an entire online program available for viewing on demand. Check us out today at bossbuildersuniversity.com. 2020 will go down, at least in my mind, in my 56th year now, as the worst year ever. For many of you, you're experiencing that too. There's a lot of challenges ahead and you as the boss are being expected to display courage. You may not have it, but you might want to think about finding it. Our guest today, Bill Treasurer, is the Chief Encouragement Officer of Giant Leap Consulting and his specialty is helping leaders learn how to be more courageous. Lots of practical tips in this one. He's got some great stories. So let's quit talking about him. Let's talk to him. You know what to do. Let's buckle up that seatbelt. It's time for us to hit the road. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. Bill Treasurer, welcome to the show. Mac, it's a great honor to be uh, speaking with you. I'm looking forward to our time together. I am too. We had a little false start earlier this week, but that's the, the fun with technology. We can do these virtual, but when we can't do them, we really can't. So I'm glad it worked out for today. Me too. We're going to be talking today about courage. And you know, I'm looking here, your title is the Chief Encouragement Officer. Now, with a name like Treasure, I figure you would be like the Chief Financial Officer. but. Ah. You probably get that all the time. I get it. But but your business is Giant Leap Consulting, and you say it's a courage-building company. I want to talk about courage at length today, and we'll get to that. But tell me about Giant Leap Consulting, and tell me about your journey to get to become that chief encouragement officer. Yeah. So, well, Giant Leap Consulting, it's uh, just turning into our 19th year in business and I started the company as a courage building company because in my own career, I realized there were plenty of times where I was biting my tongue because of not wanting to say the thing that I felt like I should say, but there might be consequence for saying it. And it was things like holding me back and holding others back was really when it came down to it, lack of courage. And so I started the company as a courage building company, recognizing that courage as a virtue has always been important outside in the regular world, in our life, right? Like Aristotle called it the first virtue. And I started thinking, well, what about in organizational settings? Is it a virtue there? And where I've landed is that courage is the first virtue of business and the first virtue of leadership. To be a leader, you've got to render bold decisions that other people are going to disagree with and withstand the flack for doing so, and that takes courage. So I started the company as a courage-building company, and in the almost 20 years now that we've been doing courage-building training programs, leading bold strategic initiatives, doing team interventions so that people act and interact more courageously with one another. We've gotten to work with some cool clients that range from small businesses all the way up to NASA we've been able to work from. And, and let me just confess right off the bat, Mac, that I learn from my clients, right? Like I learn just as much about courage from them as they learn from me because I take what I learn from clients and then I bring them to future groups. Prior to starting Giant Leap Consulting, 
I was with Accenture. I was in their change management and human performance practice. I was their very first full-time internal executive coach. And in those coaching conversations with executives who mostly outranked me, I also keyed into the idea of, boy, a lot of things come down to lack of courage or the need for courage. And the leaders I was most impressed with or admired most were those that had a certain backbone. And uh, so that was keying me in to the importance of courage. Prior to that, I was with a company called Executive Adventure, where we did outdoor experiential team building programs and having people in ropes courses together where they had to experience their courage both physically and emotionally by saying hard things with one another after we've gone through uh, physical challenges with one another. Um, and before all of that, Mac, part of why I got keyed into courage, and it's sort of the theater of my story, if you will, is that I was a member of the U.S. high diving team. And I used to dive from heights that scaled to over 100 feet, Jeez. traveling at speeds of 50 miles an hour, hitting a small pool that was 10 feet deep, protected only by a Speedo. Good Lord. <laughs> so that's the, you know, the, the genesis of Giant Leap Consulting is I used to take Giant Leaps for a living as a member of the U.S. high diving team. That's where I learned to encounter my own courage because I was really afraid of heights and had to sort of manage through that fear and walk through that fear. And it was such a redeeming experience that in my mind, even back then, I was like, you know, if I ever start a company, it's going to have to be around this idea of courage because it was so valuable for my own personal experience. And that really became the, the seed that planted later on in life into Giant Leap Consulting. Well, what prompted you to even want to get onto the high dive team? I mean, wasn't there easier sports? Couldn't you get on like the chess team or something? <laughs> you know, so... I have to, uh, you know, say I'm, I'm not a tall guy. I'm five seven and a half, and I always have to include that half. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not good at basketball. I don't particularly enjoy football, although I watch, you know, football and enjoy it. Um, I'm a terrible runner. I don't enjoy running; it burns my legs. But one day at the local pool, I was a swimmer, like so many other people, and it seemed so boring to me, just like go up and down the black line, trying to go faster and faster. And it was, it, to me, it was just boring. And then I, but I saw these lifeguards jumping on the diving board and doing can openers. And a couple of guys would do a two and a half somersault and there'd be girls looking at them. And I was like, wow, that sport seems interesting. And so at 11 years old, uh, me and my friends started to mimic those lifeguards. And by mistake, one day I pulled my legs around. I did a backflip and my friends couldn't do it. And I could. And suddenly my friends were like, wow, you do a backflip. You do, you know, and then you could do a gainer and you could do an inward dive. And, and then your friends weren't. And I, I stumbled into my own sport, whereas, I, you know, I got some recognition for it. And then I won the Westchester County Diving Championships three times in uh, Westchester, New York, where I'm from. And it became my sport. And I went to college on a full athletic scholarship to West Virginia University. And then after leaving WVU, it was like, okay, go into the real world or join these high diving shows that I had my friend. I had a couple of friends who had become high divers in these aquatic entertainment productions. And they got to travel around the country. They got to do these high dives. They got to do fire dives. They got to do clown dives and they got to meet girls. And I said, well, that looks like a lot of fun. So, so that's how I got into the, the world of high diving. 
But really, I have a profound fear of heights. And I had a coach who helped me work through that fear and, and withstand greater intensity of fear as I was moving my way up the ladder. Um, so that, that's how high diving connected to the crazy person I have become over time. That process of getting you comfortable, I mean, is that a foundation of how you help others build courage or was that just another method that happened to work with you? And how long did it take? You know, so, so what happened was the, the diving board at my school uh, got shut down the last year, my senior year. And colleges now at this point were starting to dangle scholarships in front of me. And they wanted to know about my high board list of dives. And I, I didn't have one because at the time I was petrified of heights. So now my coach had to take me down to Iona College to learn a high board list of dives if I wanted to get a full scholarship to, or if I want to get any scholarship to college. And so at Iona College, even to this day, Mac, I've never seen a diving board anywhere in the country or the world that was like the one at Iona College that was built on a hydraulic lift, like when you take your car to get an oil change. Mm -hmm. And so through that coach and another coach, we could uh, lift that diving board up. And as we did, so now it could go from one meter, which I'm normal at and, you know, really good diver. And now we can move it to one and a half meter. We don't have to work it all the way up to three meter yet, but we can go to one and a half meter. And, uh, you know, my dives are all over the place. I'm losing spatial awareness. I'm upset with my coach for asking me to do this. But after a couple of hundred dives, I become used to the discomfort. And this incremental process of modulating between comfort and discomfort, you take the performance of the person and you, and you upend it by moving them into discomfort. And, and at that point, you have to sort of let them stay in that place of uncomfort, discomfort, as they acquire new skills, as they are awkward, as they are making mistakes. But over time, they start to develop competency. And as they develop competency, they develop confidence and at some point, they'll actually start to get bored because now they've gotten really good with those skills. And when they get bored, it becomes the clue. Now I've got to nudge them back out into discomfort. And then the, in my case, he moved the diving board up to two meters. Through this process, eventually I got a high board list of dives, got a full scholarship to college. And then I continued that process learning how to be a high diver. You know, no high diver does one jump from 100 feet without doing 100 jumps from one foot. And through this increase, so you would do it incrementally. You have to go up to 10 feet, do, you know, 100 jumps there. Then you go up to 20 feet, do 50 jumps, right? Then you go up to 50 feet and do, you know, another 50 jumps. So you incrementally work your way up the high dive ladder. And yes, to answer your question in my very long-winded way, you do that incrementally. That's how you help people experience their courage. You don't find courage and comfort. You find it in discomfort, but you can't move people so far out into discomfort that they choke or they get petrified, but you got to move them enough out into discomfort that you activate the courage zone. You could also call it the learning zone because it's where learning happens. Um, I love the quote from Ginny Rometty, who's the CEO of IBM. She says, comfort and growth don't coexist. In other words, you got to get uncomfortable if you want to grow. And that's what our training programs and leadership programs and even our strategic planning programs do is we want to move people into healthy, purposeful discomfort so that they acquire new skills. I guess there's a fine balance between helpful discomfort and paralyzing fear that a person can't recover from. Do you ever run into that? 
Yeah, you know, it's, just, it's almost like the obnoxious football coach parent, right? Like in the stands, right? They're, they're when they've got their kid and they're pointing in their face, you go out there and you go, 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 and you're sort of in fear in people. If you move people too far out into discomfort, you're going to end up making them so paralyzed with fear that you erode their performance. I'll give you a real life story that's just coming to me, Mac. That, you know, you and I hadn't planned for this piece here, uh, this story that I'm going to share with you. But my wife, uh, when she and I were dating, you know, I'm an avid whitewater kayaker. And I took my wife kayaking. This is before we were married. We've been married uh, 20 years now. And I took her to a number of rivers and we had a great time. But my goal was always to take her to the Ocoee River in Tennessee where they had the Olympics in 1996. And, and it's a great river. It's a big play river, um, but it's also cons- consequential. And it's not uncommon for a river, uh, for a kayaker to go upside down on that river and then, you know, peel out of their boat, which is a dangerous thing to do. My wife was hitting her rolls very well, but I took her up to the Ocoee River and she, start, she swam like three different rapids and it turned her not off to the Okoe River. It turned her off to kayaking. She mm. has not kayaked since that day I took her to the Okoe River. I pushed her too far, too fast. And I regret that because now I'm kayaking with my teenage boys and she has no interest in doing it with us. And so there's an example of, yes, you're absolutely right. You can take the idea of comfort too, uh, discomfort too far push a person too fast, too far, and turn them off to the thing that you're trying to turn them on to. Uh, so you have to do it. You have to meter it out. I call it modulating between comfort and discomfort. You nudge a person out into discomfort enough where you activate their courage. And then when they become, you know, sort of once they get comfortable with that discomfort, it's your clue. Okay, now I got to nudge them a little bit more. So in other words, you don't just take a diver and put them off that 100-foot platform when they haven't had, you know, three, four months of incrementally working themselves up the ladder. And it's got to be the same way in the workplace. When you're training people on new skills, when you're instituting new organizational changes, if you do too much too soon, we would call that toxic change. And a person can't absorb it. One of the things, one of the things that I learned in organizational development uh, as a, you know, in the human performance and change practice at Accenture is the idea of absorbability. When you nudge a person out into discomfort, you've got to do it in an absorbable way for that individual. And that absorbability point is going to be different for each individual. So it goes back to your point. Yes, you can absolutely do too much too soon. You know, right now we're going to, I'll kind of date stamp this podcast. We're in August of 2020, which has been just a terrible year all around for most people. And now, you know, people are at a point where they're being brought back to the office. In some cases, students are being brought back to school. I mean, I'm past that stage of life now, but there's a lot of fear right now. Would this be the time that a person could start this journey and being more courageous or is this just, is it almost like the extreme, like with your wife where you pushed her in the tough rapids too soon? Should we wait for the pandemic to end bill before we start on this journey? It's, it's an interesting question. And it's one that I've been reflecting on uh, because people have been thrust into discomfort. All of us have like, it's not intentional. Like in the, in the case of a leader bringing change to an organization 
and then you know moving people onto a path of discomfort until they get ready for the uh, used to those changes is different than having all of us all of a sudden within like a few months having to deal with a global pandemic no none of us have had experience with in the past and it's upended everything so many different areas of life from business to, to our kids at school to our home life uh, to traveling to vacations to you know so uh, that is by its very nature, we're having an experiment in global discomfort. So the question becomes, as you suggest, you know, is this the time to bring people more discomfort by, as they sort of reenter the workplace? I, I guess that I'd answer the question by saying one of my clients, a large utility company in the Southeast, has elected to have my company come in and do a number of change management workshops right now. So that people can get the coping tools, uh, that they can understand how change works, why it's natural to sort of resist the loss that change comes with, to learn the ins and outs of how do you build reception to change, to at least create educational awareness of how does change work, you know, even in non-COVID times, and then how might we be able to use that right now as we're going through this strange COVID experience so that we can be healthy as we go through these changes. So they've used it as an opportunity to educate people about change, whereas normally in the, in the past it would be about how to train leaders, you know, so that they know how to bring change to the organization. The shift is more now, how do we understand the idea of change so that we can get through this crazy experience, but also in the future with other changes, uh, be able to deal with it in a productive and healthy way and let us uh, and help us not get subsumed by it. Well, I guess that you can talk about change theory, but now everybody's living it. So it's probably going to come to life a whole lot more for the folks that you're working with now. Way more concrete, way more tangible. It's the easiest example to use when I'm working the change program now, then, then you're right. Then, you know, just speaking about theoretical concepts, now it's real. So you kind of use courage and leadership together. And, and I want to focus on that just a little bit now. You've written some books on leadership. So tell us where that came from. What gave you the idea, maybe even the qualifications to write about leadership? So, you know, I, I look at, uh, so it's a good question, right? Because some people are like, well, how can you write a book about leadership? You haven't led an organization. You're absolutely right. And, in, and earlier in my career, I was probably out over my skis. I was probably communicating things that I didn't really know about. But what's happened over time is that I've had the good fortune of being able to, through my executive coaching practice, you know, even since Accenture, but now in the last 20 years, have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people in leadership roles. And I get to hear what's on the leader's mind on a daily basis. And then I work with leaders and leadership teams as they struggle to try to do right by their organizations and they get it wrong and they sometimes get it right. And then they learn things to develop, to become stronger leaders. The way that I look at it now is through all the conversations, through all the various meetings, whether it be board meetings or teams that are having interventions or EVP teams that I've kind of become like a Bob Costas of leadership. Like I have no idea if Bob Costas can play basketball or baseball. Or, or football, for that matter. But I think Bob Costas is a pretty damn good sportcaster, and he knows about sports. I know about leadership because of what I've learned interacting with so many leaders over time. And then I've codified what they've taught me 
and put them in the books that I've that I now, you know, have out there. So, so that's my experience of leadership. It's not my own personal experience having led people necessarily. Oh, I've done some of that, but it's really the the daily interactions at multiple levels of seeing what works and what doesn't work. Well, I mean, if you look at any bookstore back when there were bookstores, you know, everybody's got books on leadership. Some people have experienced a traumatic thing and they wrote a book on it. Others are academics. They write about the theory. And it seems like you're kind of in the middle of that. You've got the practical piece and you've got some of the knowledge, but you glue those together into a place where it's totally credible and believable. Kind of like a Bob Costas. It's a great example. I don't know if that man could make a basket, but he could sure talk about it. Yeah, I I appreciate it. That's a a really keen insight that uh, you're right. You know, on the one hand, I'm the practitioner. I work on a daily basis, you know, whether phone calls and coaching conversations and in-person meetings. I mean, that's, I'm a practitioner of leadership development and I learn from those interactions. On the other hand, you know, I did my thesis in graduate school some 30 years ago on leadership when I went to graduate school. So I've, I've got the theoretical underpinnings. I understand the you know, the old theories and the emergent theories on leadership, and I still read books on leadership. But to me, you can only stay in the theoretical place so long. And by the way, theory doesn't always match up with reality on the ground. You know, I think we come out, I came out of graduate school with these great leadership ideals about sort of deifying a leader and putting them on the pedestal. And this is what we should aspire to. And then, but then you get down on the practical in and out nitty gritty realities of the workplace and it gets your idealism gets tempered very quickly about what works and doesn't work. And sometimes that idealism can actually get in the way of effective leadership. That doesn't mean don't aspire to high values and you need strong character. And personally, I believe integrity has everything to do with leadership. But I do believe sometimes that uh, the, the, the experience of uh, the collegiate experience and the theoretical experience can only go so far. At some point, you've got to actually work with leaders to understand leadership. No, fair enough. Uh, it's, you know, if I think back on my graduate studies, I don't remember a heck of a lot of anything from my graduate program. Everything else you learn as you engage and you run into real life problems and everything, and then you'll see, well, I think I can see where that theory is going. But yeah. you know, some of those theories are older than you and I. And uh, maybe it's time to upgrade them a little bit, huh? Yeah, totally. You know, and the, the other thing I'd say, too, is that, you know, I, I am an organizational development professional. It's what my graduate degree is in. Uh, and it seems like in OD, the highest aspiration, at least when, from the, the academic side, is they want to promote this idea of shared leadership. And that's like the pinnacle for the academician of what leadership is. Let's all share leadership And in fact, we don't even need organizations. We just need everyone to be leaders and we can share this uh, leadership together. That's that's nice pie in the sky stuff. But I've not seen that work anywhere. I've seen it work. uh, The the one place I will say it has worked, Matt, is 12 step meetings. And it worked there. There There's absolutely shared meeting uh, leadership in 12 step programs. And it works. Having said that, in organizational settings, it, like common stockholder-led companies, they, they just don't work that way. And so why are we trying to force some template of idealism that comes out of academia that we should all be sharing leadership? 
And instead, why don't we just figure out the leaders that are in those leadership positions, having make them healthy, effective, make them good leaders, because not everyone is cut out to be a leader. And I think it's a lie to tell everybody that they need to be a leader. Sometimes you just need to do a good job. And other people are cut out for the traditional common experience of what leadership looks like in organizational settings. So that would suggest then that not everybody's going to lead. We're looking to a select few as the people that step up. So you just finished writing a book called The Leadership Killer. And in the book, you were, I guess your co-author is a retired Navy SEAL, which is pretty interesting. But you talk about self-centered leadership. So in, on one hand, we want maybe one person to be able to do it. But that seems like that's the temptation then, self-centered leadership. Talk about that. Right. So now, just so that I'm clear, too, uh, there's room for a lot of people to be leaders in an organizational setting. But if we follow the traditional pyramid, and that's how they are in, in regular organizations and most organizations, there is a management layer, maybe a senior management layer, maybe an EVP layer, and eventually you're going to get to a president and C-level executives, right? So it's, there's not everybody, the vast majority of people are not in leadership roles. We can ask them to do things that are of high value, to aspire to high ideals, to perform really well. If you want to call that self-leadership, great, but I don't think that that's leadership in the traditional way. Um, having said that, Yes, the temptation of leadership is that it becomes about the leader, him or herself. So I wrote this book with John uh, Havlick, retired captain, Navy SEAL officer. And John and I had reconnected after some 35 years of not seeing each other. He, like myself, was a swimming and diver. He was a swimmer at West Virginia University. I was a diver. And we overlapped by like a year. I got to know John way back when. And when we reconnected our relationship after seeing each other at an alumni event, we started to toss articles back and forth to one another about leadership. But more often, Mac, they turned to stories about leadership fails. So we decided to write a book about what causes a leader to fail. And there, we keyed in on some things, intimidation, incompetence. Um, there were a number of different factors. But when we really localized it and, and said, what really is the source of all those other things that are getting in the way of leadership. It really came down to a word that they use very often in the military, hubris, hubris. And when we, and in fact, when John would relate his stories, he used the term a couple of times. And so as I was writing and he was writing, I said, let's, let's key on, on that idea, John, that idea of hubris. And what hubris is, is dangerous overconfidence. The old Greek connotation of the original word hubris suggests actually taking some degree of pleasure in another person's pain. And there's even a sexual connotation, like in the Weinstein, you know, Me Too moment, uh, you know, that sort of harkens back to this idea of hubris, too. So that anytime John and I were tossing around these articles, we'd say, OK, yeah, could it be incompetence? Could it be intimidation? Could it be lack of engagement? Could it be... But then we'd all say, but could it be hubris? And so many of the stories, that was the central idea, that an ego of a leader got in their own way, that they decimated their own reputation, and they ultimately caused a lot of harm to the people that they were leading because they had shifted. I don't think they start out this way, but they made it about themselves as opposed to making it about the people that they were privileged to lead. And that is the leadership killer, hubris. What's the antidote? Humility. 
which is not something that we often think about with leadership. But we want leaders to be confident, absolutely. But there is a point at which it can turn into overconfidence and conceit. And when it turns into conceit, it becomes about the leader. The only antidote is humility. So I'll stop there because I've got to, I've got to get off my uh, preacher box. No, I think that's a good preacher box to get there. But what self-centered leader is going to say, hey, can somebody give me some humility? I'm getting a little bit too big for my britches. You, you know, it's a great question. Uh, and in fact, I wrote a different book about that idea. You know, oftentimes we don't recognize that we are getting too big for our britches until we get some reverberation from our own behavior, a karmic boomerang. We get hit in the head with our own egotistical behavior in the form of what I call, well, I don't know if I can call it on your show, but I have a, I have a book. I'll just tell you the title of the book. It's called The Leadership Kick in the Ass. Yeah, you can say ass on the show. You can say shit, whatever you want to say. That's fine. So we have these. So I have a book, A Leadership Kick in the Ass. And what I have found through my coaching conversations with leaders who I feel are authentic and have acquired humility, almost often the acquisition of humility comes through a humiliating experience where they got in their own way and they had an ass kick moment that creamed them where they had to reevaluate who they are as a leader. Clint Hurdle, the former coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates, he wrote the forward to the book. And he said he's learned over time there's two types of leaders, those who have been humble and those who are about to be. Everybody at some point in time, particularly when their ego is starting to get in the way, will get creamed from their own ego. In an organization, in my own experience working with leaders, very often it's by getting a 360-degree feedback where they get some unusual feedback about themselves that they didn't recognize. And it, and it hits them upside the head. And it's so jarring for them that they sort of recognize, okay, maybe I'm not the leader I thought I was. Now I need to get real. You know, shit get real. And now they become willing to change. And they become open to people's feedback and input because they want to get better. And they don't want to be blockage to progress either of their team or of themselves. So I find, to your question, that the way we get humility is not by going through it. You know, if you ask a person on a, on a quiz or in a survey, you know, rate yourself on humility. It, if you say, I'm not humble, this sort of suggested, or, <laughs> you, you know, or I'm yeah. really humble. You answer the question, I'm really humble. Really? You just answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, so, but, so the only way we typically recognize humility is after we've gotten stung by our own ego. Um, in my own case, I remember one time I had a girl break my heart and it, you know, chattered my ego all over the place. It took me like two years, maybe, maybe three years to sort of heal and, and uh, get over that and put my ego back together in a more realistic um, sort of version. Now, the long story of that is that now she's my wife. So ah, good. And then you go and try to drown her in the river of all things. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Somehow she saved my wife. So in, in your experience, Bill, how many leaders, I mean, if you could give a percentage, actually survive the humiliating thing that sets them back? The, the leader that gets the terrible 360 or someone that has a, a, just a crash and burn moment, do majority of them reform or do some just double down on the hubris? Yeah, so, some absolutely double down. They'll make it, uh, they, there's almost like a grievance or a victim mentality. The world is doing this to me and I'm the one who's right, damn it. And, uh, you know, if you don't learn the lesson, you have to repeat the class. The lessons will keep coming in their face until they deal with it. And if they don't deal with it, 
there ain't going to be very many people at their retirement party. Hmm. Uh, well, maybe there will just to make sure they're really gone, huh? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Maybe it's their, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their non-supporters who end up showing up. But I do find that I, I think that if a person gets coaching through that critical experience in their career, that decimation of their, that moment that is so uh, humbling, uh, if they get some coaching, if they get some mentoring, you know, it's really what that book about the, the, uh, the leadership kicking the ass is about how that moment is so critical in a career. It can actually set you up to be a way better leader, more effective, more empathetic, more reality-based, more authentic, uh, more grounded as a human being. Um, if you get through and go through that experience, I think it can make you a better leader. But in terms of percentages, I don't know. I, I like to think it's it might be like 70%, but there's probably like the 30%, as you suggest, is like, they just don't have the ego capacity of saying it might be them that needs to change. They want to instead try to, to uh, blame it on everybody else. Well, this is a critical time where people are being tested on a regular basis. And there may be so, you know, the audiences listening to this today are either going to be HR professionals who have to tolerate leaders who may or may not be effective leaders or it may be leaders themselves that are listening to this today. And so if a person said, you know what, I, I would rather, instead of having this thing hit me and be shocked, I'd rather soft land this. I'd rather start now by getting some self-awareness, maybe some coaching. Bill, how would those people find you? How can they reach out to you and have them, uh, uh, the Bob Costas of <laughs> you know, leadership and courage, work with them? How do we find you? You know, the couple of ways to get in touch. First of all, my uh, my company, GiantLeapConsulting.com. Uh, also, if you go to the word courage building, just to take those two words together, just like team building, but CourageBuilding.com. BillTreasurer.com. Um, and then finally, for an email, BeTreasurer at GiantLeapConsulting.com. Excellent. And where can we find the books, especially the newest one, The Leadership Killer? Sure. The Leadership Killer. Uh, and then the other books that I've written, Courage Goes to Work, Leadership Kick in the Ass, a couple of others. You, can, If you go to your online retailer, put in my name or put in the book's title name, The Leadership Killer, uh, you'll definitely find it. Excellent. Well, Bill, I really appreciate you taking time to chat with us this morning and uh, your message is relevant. It's something that I think uh, if you were ever looking for a time and an opportunity to step up, I believe 2020 is the year. And thankfully, people have some encouragement from you. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Matt, it's absolutely been my pleasure and hope that you stay safe and sane with your people wherever you are. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. Mm -hmm.